All right, if you want to grab your seat. If you have a, if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, encourage you to get that out, open it up. We'll be in Romans chapter 3 today. Uh, but before we get before we get started looking at Romans 3, starting in verse 21, I just want to make a quick uh, acknowledgement and announcement, and that's that one of our Western Asia Church Planting team members is uh, back with us. Becky Madro has returned home. Becky, will you just like give a wave real quick? There she is. Yeah. We, uh, we want to do... Uh, we want to do a good job as a church of not just honoring uh, Becky for the two plus years, two and a half years of time that she spent in Western Asia with our team, but also in caring and supporting for her now that she's back because all of the culture shock things that she experienced when she went to Western Asia, she's going to experience in reverse now that she's back here. And that process can be very, very difficult. And so um, if you know Becky, uh, take a minute to say hey to her this morning, give her a hug, uh, welcome her back into our congregation. If you've been following along with our Western Asia team via their emails, uh, do the same. Maybe that would be your first chance to meet Becky. But as a church potty, we just want to surround her and honor her for the work that she's done over the last two and a half years, but also love and care and support for her now that she's, she's back with us. And so um, Becky will be around. This isn't the only Sunday she's going to be here. She's part of our church. And so if you don't catch her this Sunday, make it a priority to do that next week. Sound good? Awesome. One person said yep. Okay. Um, we're going to uh, we're gonna look at Romans 3, 21 down to 31. So if you have a Bible, open up to there. You'll notice that the first two words of Romans 3, 21 are but now. Anytime we see the word but, we understand that there's a reversal coming. You know this intuitively. You've probably experienced it when you were having an interaction with somebody that started off as some sort of wonderful compliment. And midway through said wonderful compliment, they said, but, and you thought, wait a second, how did this go wrong? It felt really good when you were saying nice things, but now I'm bracing myself for the fact that you're going to say something maybe not so nice. You know, it's like a compliment with a nice, like, little backhand uh, smack along with it, right? We know when we see the word but that there's a reversal of some sort coming. And that's what's about to happen here in Romans 3.21. I think it's worthwhile uh, and very helpful if we understand everything that leads up to that but. If we were to just jump in this morning and start with but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, uh, we would be missing all that Paul has talked about up to this point. And so I want to walk fairly quickly through Romans 1.1 up to 3.21. So if you've got a Bible, flip back to Romans 1, or if you're on your phone, scroll back to it. And just kind of track with me while I walk through the beginning of Romans here. Paul says that he's a slave of Jesus Christ. And that he is giving himself fully to the gospel. In Romans 1.14, he says that I'm obligated, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then Romans 1.16 and 17 are like the thesis statement to the entire letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that is going to control the rest of Paul's letter. And in order to help us understand the importance of the gospel, of a message that would make him obligated, eager, and unashamed, he goes back to the fact that there's a problem. And so verse 18 of chapter one starts out, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them. And Paul lays out from Romans 1:18 all the way down to the end of chapter one, what is the probably the Bible's clearest, bleakest, most honest description of what sin looks like within all of humanity, that it is this stain that just marks our behaviors and our attitudes and our thoughts, that it colors the way that we do everything. All the way down to our very bodies, we are broken. And he ends it with this. These are the last few verses of Romans chapter one. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of murder, envy, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And if you could get to the end of this long statement about the reality of sin and think to yourself, I I think I'm above that. I think I'm better than that. Paul flips the script starting in verse verse one of chapter two, and he says, you might think you're moral, But therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. You might think that you're moral, but your morality is no different than anybody else's sin. You're marked by the same thing. You will be guilty in a moment of judgment. Do you really think, Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 2, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? The answer to that is, you might think it, but it won't happen. So Paul says, you, all of humanity is under sin. You might think you're moral, but you're just as guilty. And then Paul turns to the Jewish people specifically, who might have been thinking to themselves at that point, yeah, but I'm Jewish, I'm one of God's chosen people. And in verse 17 of chapter two, he says, now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immoral, you are having the embodiment of knowledge and truth through the law. You then who teach another, Don't you teach yourself? It's rhetorical, but the answer is no, they don't. You who preach you must not steal, do you steal? That answer is yes. You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? That answer is yes as well. You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? That answer is yes. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Paul says you might be Jewish by heritage, But all of your knowledge of the law, all of your understanding and your special place as God's chosen people has made you presumptuous instead of humble and reliant upon the Lord. You are just as guilty. And then T.A. last week walked us through, if you flip over to chapter 3, verse 9, 
what is Paul's final verdict. He makes the kind of closing argument here before the court, if you will. And he brings in his star witness, which is God himself. He says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin as it is written. And then these are God's words from Psalms and Isaiah. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There's no one who fears God. And by the time you get to the end of Romans chapter 3, verse 20, you can't help but think to yourself, woe is me, I have no hope. That's what he's trying to build. 64 verses Paul spends unpacking for us the reality of sin among all of humanity. And we have said over the course of the last four weeks that due to the presence of sin, what Paul is laying out is that humanity cannot earn and does not deserve God's righteous eternal favor. And then he arrives in verse 21 and he says, but now. He's about to reverse that statement. And from 321 down to 521, Paul's going to show that God's righteous eternal favor is available to all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans 321 down to 26 is potentially the greatest paragraph in all of human history. This is what it says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness since or because in his restraint he passed over the sins formerly committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. All of that talk of guilt, and Paul says, but now you can be justified freely by grace. What's going to kind of guide our time together this morning as we walk through these verses is this statement. It's going to give us an outline for all that we look at this morning. That by God's grace displayed at the cross, The unjust have been justified justly to God's glory. Let's walk our way through that. Verses 21 and 22. By God's grace displayed at the cross. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. The big zoomed out sweep of Romans up to this point is that in Romans 1.16, Paul says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. And then he gets down to verse 21 of chapter three and he comes back to the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel that makes Paul unashamed of sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. It's the wrath of God revealed from heaven that makes the gospel necessary. And then Paul comes back to it and says, here it is. 
It is the grace of God displayed at the cross. That is the good news of the hope of the gospel. In Romans 3.21, Paul moves from talking about guilt to talking about grace. There is something that has the power to remove the stain of our sin and get us out from underneath the righteous and just wrath of God. And that something is grace. We see that grace displayed powerfully in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that work has been God's plan since the beginning. There's a reminder here in Romans 3.21 of what Paul's already said at the very introduction of his letter in the second verse of of Romans chapter 1. He said then that the gospel was something which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Here he says that the righteousness of God is revealed attested by the law and the prophets. That's a way of summarizing and saying all of Old Testament Scripture lends its voice to the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross for the sin of humanity has always been God's eternal plan for his glory and humanity's salvation. What Paul is saying is that this good news, this gospel, this righteousness of God through Jesus Christ has always been the plan. Scripture has been clear about it from the beginning. God has been talking about it since the garden, and here it is. And you might look at these first two verses and say to yourself, Tim, I don't see the word grace there. You're talking about God's grace displayed at the cross. I see Jesus, and I understand the cross, but I don't, I don't see the word grace. Grace, simply defined, is God's goodness toward those who only deserve punishment. To put it another way, grace is receiving that which we do not deserve or have not earned. Paul spent 64 verses, two chapters of the Bible, making sure his readers and all of humanity understand that because of sin, they cannot earn and do not deserve God's righteous eternal favor. And then in 321, he says, but now. He signifies that he's about to talk about something you don't deserve, that there is hope despite your guilt, that there is grace despite the fact that you could not possibly stand on your own before the judge and that we see it at the cross. By God's grace, displayed at the cross, the unjust have been justified. The unjust Look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a one-sentence summary of everything that Paul has said from Romans 1.18 down to 3.20. And you might see it there, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and think to yourself, why didn't Paul just say that and then move on to the but now? Why did we need to spend four weeks of listening to Tim and T.A. talk about the reality of sin if Paul was going to put it in one sentence later? Couldn't he have just done that initially, cut to the chase? I think there's a reason. You don't know that you need a Savior until you know that you need saving. And you don't know that you need saving until you understand that there's something wrong. And because of sin's ability to make us horribly and brutally unself-aware, we're more or less hardwired to not know that there's a problem until someone makes it painfully aware that there's a problem. Paul's laid that out clearly. That's been his objective for two chapters now. 
And then he gives it one last summary. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I just want to take a quick little sidebar here. One of the challenges of explaining and sharing the gospel in a suburban middle class or upper upper middle class area is that we really, the vast majority of us in here, I can't speak for everyone, but for the most part, we've never experienced a need. I've never truly needed something in my life. And I think that's probably true for most of us. We use the word want and the word need as if they are synonyms. They're not. We say, oh my gosh, I need food. You don't need food. There are people on earth that need food. You want food. Oh, I just really need those shoes. No, you don't. (laughs) There are plenty of people all over the world who do actually need shoes. The vast majority of the time, we don't need shoes. We haven't really experienced need. And so when you stand up in front of somebody or in front of a room full of somebodies and you try to explain that you need a savior, most of us are left scratching our head like, what do you, I've never needed anything. What do you mean I need a savior? Need? I'm not even sure if I want a savior, right? That's kind of where we tend to think. And so Paul's tried to make it painfully clear. You have a need. And so, yes, we spent four weeks from up here talking very clearly about the reality of sin so that I could get up here today and say, you have a need. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We must have a savior. The reality is that there is no distinction in guilt. None. Regardless of how moral you think you might be, no matter what your family or heritage may be, no matter how faithfully it is that you do rote religious stuff, if left to yourself, you are guilty. And your guilt deserves God's punishment. And yet, but now, the good news of the gospel is that there is also no distinction in salvation. Look back to the end of verse 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. There's no distinction in guilt. There's no distinction in salvation. All are equally guilty. All are equally in need of being saved. All have equal access to the Savior and all equally can be saved. The double edged nature of the gospel is that there is no one so moral that their life could merit salvation and there's no one so sinful that their life could disqualify them from salvation. You need a savior. I need a savior. The person sitting next to you needs a savior. The guy at the end of your street needs a savior. The woman at the end of the hallway in your office complex needs a savior. The person over in Western Asia needs a savior. And we all have equal access to the same one the only one, Jesus Christ. By the grace of God displayed at the cross, the unjust, that's everyone, have been justified. Look at verses 24 and 25. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. Justified. It's as if Paul can't come up with enough illustrations 
for just how meaningful the work of Jesus on the cross is. And so he packs three very poignant images into one very confined space. And so I want to just walk through those because understanding them is important. The first one is justification. Some would say that the entire letter of Romans is, could be summed up under that word. It's all about justification. Justification is a legal term. It comes from the court. It fits perfectly what Paul's been doing here over the last two chapters. Paul's been establishing our guilt before the Lord due to the presence of sin. Saying that at our moment of judgment, the evidence will be completely stacked against us. That the Old Testament law would confirm that, that your very conscience would confirm your guilt. And in his closing argument last week, Paul brought in the very words of God as his final witness. But now, Paul says, someone has justified you. They've acquitted your guilt. But acquittal isn't even really a fully accurate term. To be acquitted would be to say that there wasn't enough evidence to convict you, so you're innocent. That isn't exactly what happened at the cross. You are, I am, we are absolutely guilty. The evidence is overwhelmingly against us. But Jesus bore the sentence on your behalf. Your guilt became his. The punishment for your sin was death, and he willingly took that for you. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.5, that the punishment for our peace was upon him. You've not merely been acquitted. You've been fully justified. In spite of all of your wrongness, the rightness of Christ can be yours. 2 Corinthians 5.21, and if you take a picture of the slide or something, there's a typo. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Left on our own, we are overwhelmingly guilty, and yet Christ has taken our guilt upon himself. He substituted for you and taken the full weight of your punishment. When you stand before the Lord, you can be declared innocent because Jesus Christ, the innocent one, allowed himself to be declared guilty. That is grace. You've been justified. But Paul goes on. They are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a marketplace term. In the Old Testament world, a slave could have their freedom purchased. And when the price was paid on their behalf, they were redeemed. They were paid for, bought out from under the yoke of their slavery. Interestingly enough, when the, Egypt, or when the Israelites are brought out of their slavery from Egypt, what word gets used to describe what's just happened to them? They were redeemed. Redeemed from Egypt. Bought out of slavery. Paid for. Purchased as God's people. The work of Christ on the cross, has purchased or redeemed your debt. If you've got a Bible, just look back or flip back to chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul's been using this money metaphor. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up, literally treasuring wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. And that repayment, Paul says, left to your own devices, is going to lend you nothing but guilt. 
Affliction and distress, Paul says. Wrath and anger. Flip back to where we are. You've been redeemed. Our sin has been making a continual and constant withdrawal from a moral bank account that is already empty. And at your moment of judgment, God is going to call for that account to be settled and you're not going to be able to pay it. You are guilty. You have a debt because of your sin. And Paul says, but it's been paid by Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus has purchased you out from under the weight of your debt to sin. Have you ever been in line at a drive-thru? You're at Starbucks or Chick-fil-A and you pull up to the window and the person in front of you has already paid for your drink or for your food? It happened to me just the other day. I felt like the greatest person in the world. It's like, I don't know that human being in front of me and I don't know why they love me so much, but they just bought my waffle fries and sweet tea. (laughs) And I want to hug them. What Jesus Christ has done for you at the cross is infinitely greater. When I stand there in my moment of judgment, I'm going to stand there confidently thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That he has redeemed, he's paid the price for my sin. But I think, and I don't know this for sure, but I think I'm going to be fully aware of just how much he's paid. And it's going to be the greatest moment of my eternal existence. Redemption. You've been paid for. 1 Corinthians 6.20. You were bought at a price. You didn't deserve it, but your debt was paid. You've been freed. That is grace. But it goes on. He gives another analogy. Verse 25. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. The word here that uh, my CSB translates atoning sacrifice, if you've got an ESV, it might say whom God put forward as a propitiation. If you've got an NLT, it might say as a sacrifice for sin. The word that's being translated there is hilasterion. It's a complicated Greek word that gets translated multiple ways, as is evidenced by the different ways the different translations try to do this. I want to be brief here, but I think it's important to understand both or at least the two most prevalent options. This is a religious term that can be translated as either propitiation, which means to placate anger, to appease God's wrath, or it can mean expiation, which means to remove defilement. And what determines whether a group of translators select propitiation to use here or expiation is what they think the object is that Paul's dealing with. Is the object God? And if that's the case, we have to say propitiation because God has been appeased, placated by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If the object is sin, then we need to say expiation because our sin has been cleansed. It's been washed. My take Uh, And I hold this loosely, so I'm willing to stand before the Lord and be wrong and smile and say, cool. Um, My take is that Paul has been very clear up to this point. The subject matter here is God's wrath. That you are underneath it. Because of your sin, you are guilty 
And what you deserve is God's just punishment for your sin. And that Jesus Christ, that God presented Jesus Christ as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation for his anger. That Jesus Christ's blood shed on the cross has graciously absorbed and removed that wrath on your behalf. Is Paul obviously also talking about sin? Yes. Do we need to be cleansed of our sin? Yes. But again, my, my understanding here, my take of this verse, is that it's sin that has brought wrath. And so what needs to be appeased, dealt with, is God's wrath toward your sin. In either instance, propitiation, expiation, in either instance, what has done the work is the blood of Jesus Christ, an atoning sacrifice in his blood. We need something to remove God's wrath from ourselves. We need something to cleanse us from the stain of sin, and we have it in the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul's made it clear that we have sin within us. We need something to remove the wrath in response to that sin, and we have that in Jesus Christ's blood. The death of Christ on the cross is the wrath-absorbing, sin-cleansing grace of God on our behalf. There in the death and blood of Jesus is the atonement that we need. Both of these statements are absolutely true, that the blood of Jesus Christ has satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. That is a factual statement. It's also factual to say that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away the stain of our sin. If you have faith in Christ, that is grace. You did not deserve to be justified. You did not deserve to be redeemed. We do not deserve for the wrath of God to settle upon Christ instead of us, for our sin to be washed clean, but it's been given to us by God's grace. That is all very, very good news. That is the power of but now in verse 21. There's one more piece to it. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith. Remember the big statement here that's guiding us for like a chapter and a half, all the way to the end of chapter five, that God's righteous eternal favor is available to all by uh, grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is through God's grace, by God's grace, through our faith, that we can have God's righteous eternal favor. God's grace is absolutely available to every single person. There's no distinction in that, but it must be received. And faith is the vehicle through which we take hold what God has made available. It's worth defining faith at this point. We talk about placing faith in Jesus Christ a lot, but let's be really practical about what that means. Faith is more than hope. Faith is more than just hoping that the things God promises through Christ are going to come true, but it can't be less than hope. Faith is more than just factual agreement that you intellectually agree with who Jesus was and what he did, but it can't be less than factual agreement. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. I think Alistair McGrath offers a great definition of faith. He says it this way, Faith is not merely believing something is true, it is being prepared to act upon that belief and relying upon it. 
We've been trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be gospel-centered as a follower of Jesus? Being gospel-centered begins with the gospel, placing your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sin. And that means you don't just believe that it's true, but you put all of who you are into that faith. You rest everything upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you on the cross. You put all of your hope and all of your trust in the fact that he justified you, that he redeemed you, that he was the atoning sacrifice, and then you live by it. You act upon it. You rely upon it. It's not just a one-time deal that you think in your head, yes, that sounds good. It becomes the driving force in your life. That is faith. You're willing to act upon that which you believe is true. And our language and our words matter here. And so this may seem trivial, but it's amazingly important. And then let me give the second caveat. When I make the following statement, you might want to throw something at me, but give me 25 seconds. We are not saved by our faith. Don't throw things. We are saved by God's grace. Faith is the means by which we take hold of the grace that saves us. John Stott says it this way. Faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Salvation has come and does come by the grace of God. We receive that grace through faith. God's righteous eternal favor is available to all by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. In the last couple phrases of this paragraph, Paul gives uh, the next chunk of our statement here, that by God's grace displayed at the cross, the unjust have been justified justly. Paul says that all of this happened so that God could demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint he passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in him. In the last couple phrases of the paragraph, Paul makes sure that we understand that God has not compromised his character in any of this. Sin has a payment required. His wrath against the reality of sin could not just be ignored. And that's why all of those analogies are so important, that the work of Christ justified you, that it redeemed you, that it was the atoning sacrifice. God is just in justifying the unjust because by the cross his character is upheld. Paul uses the word righteous, unrighteous. Another way to make this statement would have been to say that the righteous one has righteously righteous to the unrighteous, but that felt more confusing than the unjust have been justified justly. But Paul's trying to help us see that what God has done through Jesus at the cross has justified us, but just as importantly, maintained him to be just. Both of those matter. God hasn't compromised who he is in saving us by the work of Jesus Christ. And then he finishes in 27 down to 31 by saying that all of this is to God's glory. Where then is boasting? It is excluded, Paul says. For we conclude, if you jump down to 28, that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You cannot boast because the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the ultimate display of God's glory and grace. 
And what Paul answers here, and he returns to this kind of asking questions and answering his own questions sort of motif that he's done a couple of times, he lays out three important truths that I'm going to work through very quickly here. That the gospel of grace humbles sinners. Where is boasting? It is excluded. When you understand the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, that you needed to be justified, that you needed to be redeemed, it humbles you. There's no boasting in that. And then he also says that the gospel of grace unified believers. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles too. There's no distinction in guilt. There's no distinction in salvation. We are unified regardless of our race or ethnicity, regardless of our people of origin. And then he says that the gospel of grace highlights God's eternally righteous character. Do we then nullify the law by faith through faith? And Paul says, absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold it. God in Jesus has upheld perfectly all that the law and the prophets pointed to. This is to his glory and his glory alone. If you find yourself glorying in your part of having saved yourself, then you've not understood the nature of grace. You couldn't earn it. By its very nature, it was given to you. So an application question today, and we want to be really clear about this this morning. Two simple questions. The first one, what is your faith in? When you think about the end of your life, your moment of judgment, what are you relying upon to save you in that moment? And be honest with yourself. Good behavior, Maybe not good behavior, but the absence of too much bad behavior. What are you thinking is going to save you? What do you think is going to make an eternal difference at your moment of judgment? Because if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross on your behalf, it will come up woefully, woefully short. What does it look like to respond in faith to Jesus Christ? It looks like having a but now moment personally in your life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Practically, in the life of an individual, that looks like this. Watch this video. But now, but now, but now, but now, there was a time in my life when I was hurt and scared. But now that I've given Christ control of my life, I have peace and comfort. But now, but now, my life used to be filled with pride and self-sufficiency, even believing that um, Jesus died for me because I was good. But now, God has broken me and humbled me by His grace and revealed to me that my righteousness is in Him and Him alone. But now, but now, uh, there was a time in my life when even as a believer, I struggled to receive and express love. But now, through my relationship with Jesus, I've experienced the love of God the Father in a way I could have never imagined. But now, but now, before surrendering my life to Christ, I lived a life of rebellion full of guilt and shame, and I was self-destructive. But now, 
Because of God's grace, I live a life full of peace and joy and adventure as I live out in submission to Him for His glory. But now... But now... Ten years ago, I received the, the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. That was really discouraging and led me to depression. But now, I found that Jesus gives me great hope and encouragement. But now... I was trapped in a world of lies, fear, and anxiety. But now, I live in a world of truth and light because of my Savior. But now, but now, I used to idolize happiness as the thing that would bring me peace and keep me from pain. But now, I know that the circumstances in my life that have been the most painful are the Lord's kindness to allow me to experience the gospel and understand that my hope is not in my circumstances, but my hope is in eternity. But now, but now, my life used to focus on doing the right Christian things, but now I am a disciple of Christ and focus on being in Christ. But now, there was a time in my life where I indulged in suffering and death. But now, in Christ, I enjoy living in life. But now, before Jesus revealed himself to me, I was self-consumed, I was miserable, I was without hope of a future, I was alone. But now in Christ, my Savior, I have hope. I have a future, and I'm not alone, never. And all these many years I've known him, he's never proven himself unfaithful. We're going to close our time this morning in worship like we typically do, but we want to be really clear with some instructions for this time. Um, as we sing, and we invite you to, you know, to stand and sing with us, I'm, I'm asking everybody in the room, Consider honestly, vulnerably, whether or not you can point to a but now time in your life. A time where you went from lost, but now I'm found. A time where you went from blind, but now I see. A time where you went from under the wrath of God to but now I'm living in the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. If that moment hasn't happened for you, you can have a but now moment right now this morning. It doesn't require anything special. You don't have to be in a certain place at a certain time. I had my but now moment 17 years ago, sitting on a coffee stain on the carpet right over there when I heard the gospel for the first time. You can have that moment this morning. And so while we worship, our staff is going to be kind of lined up back here in the walkway between the lower and the back section. If you'd like to talk with someone or pray with someone to receive the grace of God, to take hold of God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, would you come and talk to one of us? We'd love to spend that time with you this morning. Let's stand up and sing together.